Thank you, Alistair. Um, last time I spoke a few weeks ago, we looked at the start of the letter to the Hebrews. Um, I won't repeat the whole introduction, but you can download it from the church website or the podcast feed if you missed it. But essentially we concluded that this letter wasn't written by the Apostle Paul. Um, I suggested it was probably written by Apollos, but you pay your money and you take your choice on that. I also suggested it was probably written in the early to mid-60s AD or CE, whichever currency you use, early in the reign of the Emperor Nero, when the church was suffering low-level harassment um, and persecution, but wasn't being persecuted to the point of death. Um, We also suggested it was written to disheartened Jewish Jesus followers in Rome who had become disillusioned and disappointed and were thinking of going back to their former way of life to escape the low-level persecution that the church was experiencing in Rome. We also noted that this letter is not a theological treatise, as it's often made out to be, but it's actually a deeply pastoral letter that reads more like a sermon than a letter. Um, It's also trying to encourage those beleaguered believers to hold to the faith and to press on. And it's seeking... Sorry, and it... It's seeking to point out that what they have in Jesus is superior to what they had before. The word, the Greek word kraton, appears 12 times in this letter. Um, It's translated by a number of different English words, so it's actually difficult to spot it when it crops up. But those words include better, greater, and superior, depending which version you're using. Some use different words as well. So this word, this better, greater, superior word, is the kind of theme word of this letter, if you like. So when reading it, we need to keep the background in our minds if we're to make sense of what it actually says. I find it helps when I'm reading it to imagine myself in the situation of one of those early Jewish believers, hungry, unemployed, discouraging and wondering if the cake is worth the bun. And last time, we just looked at the first four verses, so I'm going to try and cover a bit more ground this time around, or we'll be in this book forever. Um, Sue and I once went, we, the church we were in before we moved here, our church leader told us we were going on a church holiday and to get our tents ready. So we went on a church holiday, and when we arrived on this church holiday, and it was probably the wettest week I've known, apart from this last week, Um, But when we got on this church holiday, we suddenly saw this stonking great marquee. And we said, what's that for? And our church leader said, oh, that's for the meetings. Um, So it wasn't a church holiday at all. And then the very first evening, we went in, sat down, had this worship time. And I don't know if any of you remember Arthur Wallace, um, but Arthur Wallace was a well-known Christian leader who asked us a question at the beginning of his sermon. He said, who's ever heard, who's ever read the book of Hebrews? And most hands went up. And then he said, who's ever read it all in one sitting? And a few hands went up. And then he said, well, you're in for a treat. And he proceeded to read us the entire letter 
to the Hebrews. And at the end of it, I thought, well, that's fair enough. He's read the entire book. Let's go off, get some cocoa, chat around the fire. No, he then proceeded to preach for an hour on it. Um, I went rapidly off Arthur Wallace. I don't propose to do either of those things this morning. So, for those of you who are not aware, this is where you'll find the book of Hebrews in your Bible. I was really impressed yesterday. I was, I went, I was asked to speak to a youth group weekend away down in the New Forest. Um, and not only did all of them have a dead tree Bible in their hands, but they also knew where to find everything. I was really impressed. But if you don't know where to find it, and there's no shame in not knowing where to find it, there's a really good index in the front of your Bible, or you can use that diagram there. So we're going to look at Hebrews 1, verse 5, through to 2, verse 4, um, which says this. It says, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You're my son, today I've become your father? Or again, I will be his father, and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. And in speaking of the angels, he says, he makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. But about the son, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You've loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He also says, In the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe. Like a garment, they'll be changed, but you remain the same, and your years will never end. To which of the angels did God ever say, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we don't drift away. For since the message spoken through angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Amen. Um, Much longer passage today, but this is one unit, really. So last time, we saw that the writer emphasized that in previous times, God had spoken through the prophets multiple times and in multiple ways to his people. And we had the first occurrence of our theme word, which is translated superior, in verse 4 or more excellent if you use the ESV. Jesus, the writer was telling us, is much greater, or so much greater, or better than, or superior to, the prophets. And then, in today's passage, we see Jesus compared this time not to the prophets, 
but to the angels in what is a whistle-stop tour of the Old Testament. Uh, And after this, in future weeks, we will also see Jesus compared to and shown to be so much greater than Moses, and after that, to the covenants in the Old Testament. Now, just a word about the word angel before we begin to look at at these passages. In, um, In both Greek and Hebrew, the word, or the languages in which most of the Bible was written, the word translated angel can mean both messenger and angel. And so every time you come across the word messenger or angel in your Bible, the translator has made a choice between those two alternatives. They might or might not have got it right. I can't think of instances, where I think of one instance where I think they might not, but um, you just need to bear that in mind. So the English Standard Version, particularly, tends to translate it messenger more frequently. So, let's break this passage down to see if we can make it a bit more understandable. Let's look at verse 5, first of all. Um, I've mentioned that the writer here embarks on a whistle-stop tour of the Old Testament. Um, And we begin this in verse 5, and the writer does it by chaining together a number of Old Testament passages, usually in pairs. Um, uh, And these pairs of passages are also connected to one another, and I'm going to try and demonstrate that to you. Uh, It was a technique used by by the rabbis in those days when they were trying to argue something. So let's have a look at verse 5. What they would tend to do is they'd chain these pairs of passages together and then blitz you with a whole load of stuff so that it was kind of overwhelming evidence of what they were saying, and we'll see that happen here. So if we look at this one, this consists of two quotes, one of them from Psalm 2 and verse 7, and one of them from 2 Samuel 7 and verse 14, just after God has made his covenant with King David, promising him an everlasting covenant. There's a verse that we would probably say is pointing forward. We wouldn't wouldn't probably say it. We would say it is pointing forward to Jesus. And this rabbinic technique also used what are often referred to as catchwords, where a key word or thought in one quotation is then echoed in the other. And we'll see it happen here. So we've got the word son, occurring in both, and the word father occurring in both. So these two quotes are connected. Um, But the point here is that the writer is saying, that. and this question, to which of the angels did he ever say, what he's really saying is, and of course, God never said to any of the angels, today, uh, sorry, you're my son, and today I become your father. And he never said to any of the angels, I'll be his father, and he'll be my son. What God is saying is that Jesus has a special place that is very different from the place that any of the angels hold. Um, I actually have a son here this morning, so there's only one person, sorry Simon, I'm going to use your sermon illustration, but there's only one person on this planet who can say, he's my father of me, and there's only one person on this planet of whom I can say, he's my son. Simon actually has a special status. Well, I don't know if he regards it as being that special, but uh, it might be something he really um, regrets. But, but actually, he is my son. He has a special place in my heart, and hopefully I have in his. Um, 
And this first pair of quotations is saying, Jesus is the Son of God, and God is his Father, and that is simply not true of the angels. What you had in, in that world, was, certainly in the Jewish world of that day, was people beginning to give angels a special place. And what the writers of the Hebrews here is saying, no, 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 no. We've got something far better than angels in Jesus. Um, and this whole passage talks about this. Um, so let's move on then to verses 6 and 7. Um, right, sorry. You do amazing things with PowerPoint nowadays. Um, so, the verses 6 and 7 say this. It says, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. And in speaking of the angels, he says, he makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. So, when we look at this one, um, we can see uh, that not only is Jesus superior by being the Son, he's not just the Son, but he's actually worthy of the worship of the angels. So, he's not just the Son, but he's worthy of being worshipped by the angels. So, these people, these angels that they've been giving a special place to, the writer here is saying, no, 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 no. This Jesus is worthy of their worship. He's far higher than the angels are. Um, and that those angels are actually created beings. And he does this by quoting from Psalm 97 um, and Psalm 104. The first of these quotes is slightly obscure, but it also crops up... Um, this gets a bit technical, you don't need to, to, to understand this, but someone will look it up and say it doesn't say that in my Bible. Well, no, it doesn't. But actually, in the Dead Sea Scrolls version and the Septuagint version, which is the Greek Bible that the Apostle Paul probably used, it does. Okay, so please don't just come up to me after and say it doesn't say it. It does, depending which of the ancient versions you use. Um, so... Jesus is being compared to the angels here, and the key, the catch word we pick up here is the word angels that appears in both of these quotes. So he is, of course, far, far greater than they are, but that doesn't mean that the angels don't play a positive role. What the writer here is not doing is, he or she, is not dissing the angels, okay? He, 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 we'll see that as we get further on, but he's actually trying to state how much higher the, the higher Jesus is than the angels, how much lower the angels are than Jesus, a bit like that thing we did in the um, song there earlier. I was interested that Jerry had chosen so many songs about angels this morning, so I don't think, I'd to, I don't think he knew what I was talking about, or was it deliberate, Jerry? All right, well done. Jerry must be moving in the spirit. So, uh, that's verses 6 and 7. If we then look at verses 8 to 12, so we've had two kind of pairs of verses thrown in. Uh, now, as if to say, yeah, there's more, as what's his name used to say, um, Jimmy Carson. That shows my age, doesn't it? Um, he starts throwing Bible quotes at us left, right, and center now. So, so far, he's differentiated Jesus from the angels by pointing out 
that Jesus is the Son of God, they're not, by pointing out that he's worshipped by the angels while they are his servants. And we now move a stage further in verses 8 to 12, um, where we just have this kind of... This, so this time we switch from God talk, from the writer speaking about the angels to speaking about the Son. And we are absolutely blitzed with Bible verses here. These come from all over the place in the Old Testament, um, really in an attempt to say, and if you, th- if you want to argue back, just have a look at this lot. Um, he's just chucking the whole kitchen sink of quotations in to make sure we get the point that this Jesus is in a different league from the angels. Um, So this time, the main quotes come from Psalm 45 and a combination of Psalm 6 and Zechariah 12, verse 1, for anyone who's listening to the recording. Um, There are also some catchwords, which are not exactly the same words, but are kind of linked thoughts, which we'll see. So these are all talking about Jesus' eternal nature, that he will live forever and ever. While other things pass away, he will remain and his years will never end. He will remain the same, but his years will never end. So the, the, the connecting thought in all of these is that this Jesus is not some transitory being, but he is eternal. He was there right back at the beginning, and he will be there forever and ever. We used to have... So, yeah, the, they're linked by the idea of Jesus being eternal. He's enthroned forever. He will rule justly and wait for it. He is himself God. Um, We used to have someone in the church who came from a Jehovah's Witness background who would regularly say to me, tell me one verse in the Bible that says that Jesus is God. Uh, And they dismissed this one as it referred to the Son. Um, But I don't think you can seriously claim that this is not talking about Jesus. I also don't think you can seriously claim that the New Testament doesn't say Jesus is God. It, it certainly very strongly implies it in multiple other places, and I think it gets pretty explicit in John 1 as well. So the second quote then goes on to talk about how Jesus was there as creator. He's not part of creation himself, but he was himself involved in creating the earth and the heavens. He was there before the earth and the heavens were there, um, and he was involved in creating it. He is an eternal being who is himself God. He's been ruling forever, and he will be ruling forever. Um, I find this quite exciting. You obviously don't, or you're thinking you'd rather be out in the sun. But... that this Jesus is eternal. He's forever. He's been there forever and he will be there forever. He's ruling, he's reigning, he will always be ruling and reigning. And then the the writer, one of these days, uh, whenever I speak about the book of Hebrews, at some point I will say, and Paul says, I'm convinced Paul didn't write it, but um, I nearly said it then. So the writer Um, whether it's Apollos or Priscilla or whoever it might be, closes off this section then in verse 13 by saying this, which is a quote from Psalm 110. And the the whole letter to the Hebrews is basically one big long riff 
on Psalm 110. And so Psalm 110 comes in here, but you'll find it crops up in multiple places throughout the letter to the Hebrews. So he closes this, he or she, closes off this section by repeating the question that they started with right back at the beginning of verse 5. And remember that question was, to which of the angels did God ever say? And they close this by saying, to which of the angels did God ever say? Which is creating a kind of what's called an inclusio. Um, It's saying, this is a section in its own right. This all belongs together, and that's the beginning and that's the end. They didn't have punctuation. If you look at the manuscripts, there is no punctuation in the manuscripts. There aren't even letters, there aren't even spaces between words, and there are no paragraphs. So they used literary devices to say, this is the end of the section. And that's what this repeating the first question is saying. So, to which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? So, put yourself back in the shoes of that early Jewish believer, hard-pressed, discouraged and disheartened. How do you think you'd feel at that statement? That's not a rhetorical question, I'm asking a question here. So, How do you think you'd feel when you heard that statement? Sorry? You'd feel good? Just good? Encouraged, yeah. That's the word that occurred to me as I read it. Any other thoughts? Does it, is it achieving the writer's objective in trying to say to this believer, yeah, it's worth it, keep on going? Is it, is it accomplishing that? Sorry? Settled it. Very good. Thank you, Val. Yes. You might feel a bit challenged, yeah, because you'd be thinking, hang on, you know, hang on, I've got to keep going now, just when I was thinking of giving up, yeah. Okay. Yes, keep reading it, because this letter would have been read out in a church on a Sunday morning. These letters were not, you know, when when the Bible talks about reading, it doesn't mean you sit there doing this quietly. It means someone is standing up the front reading the whole thing out loud. And at the end of reading out loud, they would discuss it and what it meant for them. It wasn't just quietly read in the way that we read nowadays. I think Amelia wants to come and play with me. Um... So I think, actually, that this is quite encouraging. I think it is seeking to stir them. And for us, we live in a day, well, we'll come to that in a minute, but we live, because the other thing it talks about here is about waiting for that day when I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And we live in... um, some of you will have heard me use the phrase before, we live in what what I often refer to as the now and the not yet. We live in a world in which the kingdom of God has come in, but we also still live in the present age. We live in a kind of overlap, and we see sometimes the kingdom of God breaking into the present, don't we? You know, what that illustration Val gave, the kingdom of God broke in there. We see God's kingdom breaking into the present. There will come a time when the kingdom of God breaks in dramatically 
uh, and all things are wrapped up and Jesus reigns visibly and tangibly forever. Thank you, Joy. But at the moment we live in this overlap, don't we? And we live in this period where Jesus' enemies are being made a footstool for his feet. They're defeated, but they're not yet visibly a footstool for his feet. And we live in that overlap. The kingdom of God has come and is yet to come. It's both. It's not either or. Those who say the kingdom of God has come and we, sh- we, ju- you know, we should just live in the full kingdom of God now have what theologians refer to as an over-realized eschatology. Basically means they've gone over the top. Um, but those who don't recognize that the kingdom of God has come and simply live in the present also deny the reality and the power of what Jesus accomplished through his death and resurrection. The kingdom of God has come, but it's also still to come. We see it breaking into the present, and we catch glimpses of what it's like. But Jesus' enemies are still in the process of being made a footstool for his feet. This also points out that angels are ministering spirits who are there to serve those who will inherit salvation. I think that's quite good news. Don't know about well, some of you do. Um, certainly over this side they do. Um, so the angels are there. They're there to serve those who worship and who follow God. Now, we live in a world at the moment in which the, the kind of spirituality around us is inclined to focus, I think, excessively on angels. Um, it was far easier to find a picture of angels than it is for lots of the things I try and find pictures for when I'm doing PowerPoint slides. Because, you know, I would say not a week goes by without someone I know, and this will upset someone, but not a week goes by without someone I know posting a picture of an angel on Facebook with some syrupy words underneath it. And actually, that's... Sorry, folks, if you've done that, but... Um, does he? All right. <laughs> I've never used the word drew and syrupy words in the same <laughs> sentence. <laughs> Moving swiftly on. Um, so, angels are there to serve the people of God. There will be occasions when they do it. I think... There are probably fewer occasions than some people like to think and more occasions than some of the rest of us like to think. Um, But angels are created beings, beings created by God to minister to and to serve those who follow him. But they are not to be compared on any level, as the writer to the Hebrews has has pointed out to us, not to be compared to any level to Jesus at all. Because they exist on a completely different level. They're not sons. He's a son. They don't have a father. He has a father. They're not to be worshipped. He is to be worshipped. And not only to be worshipped, but to be worshipped by them. They weren't involved, they weren't agents in creation, so they, they, they didn't take the initiative in creation. They might or might not have been involved in the act of creation. 
I don't have a particularly strong view on that, and I can't get too excited about it. He was, he had agency in creation. Jesus was an initiator of the whole of creation. They don't rule. He rules, and he will rule forever. So Jesus is on a completely different, different plane, a different level, a different dimension almost from the angels. And so if we get all caught up with angels, folks, we are missing the point. That 21st century spirituality that gets all interested in angels is missing the point. They're just the postman. Um, That's the role of an angel. The very word itself in both Greek and Hebrew means messenger. An angel is just a postman or post-delivery person. Are we allowed to call them postmen now? Um, Sorry? Okay, thanks, Drew. (laughs) But you get the point. The angels are just there to deliver the message. They're not there to be the message. And what the writer to the Hebrews is saying to these people is, stop getting all excited about angels. They're just, they're, they're great, you know, they're pretty cool, but they're there just to deliver the message. The one you need to get excited about is this Jesus, because he is the Son. He is the Son of God the Father. He is the one who is from eternity and to eternity. He is the one who created the world. He is the one who will ru- who has been ruling and will reign forever. He's the one under whose feet his enemies are being made a footstool. And if there's any hope in being a Christian, it's that the day will come when he will return to rule and to reign on this earth. Or on a renewed earth, depending on your theology. So, um, so we've seen that Jesus is the Son, unlike the angels. He's worshipped, unlike the angels. He was from eternity, unlike the angels. And he's enthroned at the right hand of God, unlike the angels. And the angels are spirits created by God to minister to God's people. And finally, we are urged in the final, or the first four verses of chapter 2 there, that since that salvation proclaimed by the angels was so great we should hold fast all the more to the salvation that was proclaimed by Jesus himself. Do you get that? So, this, these, these first four verses here, or last four verses of, the, of what we're reading, are saying um, that although the salvation proclaimed by the angels was great, the salvation proclaimed by Jesus himself is so much greater. So, really, they're saying, don't focus on the angels. Yeah, it must have been great when they sang on that hillside to the shepherds. But actually, Jesus himself is so much greater. And the reason they were singing on the hillside to the shepherds was because of Jesus. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't an exercise in music. Wonderful as it probably was. Um, I've lost my place now. Oh yeah, so I think this is a potent message to these first century believers. What this writer is doing is going through systematically and saying to them, okay, prophets, they were great. They were godly men. God spoke to them in all sorts of ways, but actually one who's far greater has come now, and that's Jesus. And what they're saying in this chapter 
is, yeah, angels, great, they're cool. They can probably walk through walls, they can sing beautifully. But actually, this Jesus is so much greater. And he will go on to say, he'll really push the, the button in as we go on, when the one that they really look to, Moses, he'll say, yeah, Moses, great guy, but this Jesus. And the whole of this letter to the Hebrews is saying, yeah, pretty good, but Jesus. Jesus.